Good afternoon, congregation. We would like to extend a warm welcome to all those who are worshiping with us today, including those who are online. We pray that we will be nourished and refreshed as we worship the Lord together and that he is glorified in this. Consistory has the following announcements repeated from this morning. This week, Wednesday, Matthias, Kaylee, and Elijah Schatt will be visiting us for a few days. We've put together an itinerary which has been shared on, shared on church social and placed in the mailboxes of members who aren't on church social. There will be a council followed by a consistory meeting this week, Thursday, beginning at 7.30. The collections that today are for the work of the deacons to distribute to those in need, both within and outside of our congregation. This afternoon, I will be leading us in worship of our faithful God using a sermon prepared by Dr. Wes Bradenhoff, Minister of Word and Sacraments at the Free Reformed Church of Launceston, Tasmania. Brothers and sisters, we come to worship our God not because of our own desire, though it is our greatest joy. Rather, we come because Christ himself has called us to worship on this day of days. Hear the call to worship from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, we cannot by our own strength and will transform ourselves or renew our minds, but we need help. Congregation, where do we find that help? Name of the Lord. Our God, who calls us to worship and who transforms us to be the worshipers he delights in, greets us with the words of Revelation 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. Let us respond to the greeting of our God and King with the words of hymn 3, verses 1 and 2.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are wise and holy and your testimony is sure. You have given us the gospel of your Son, attested to by the Scriptures, for the glory of his name unto the obedience of faith among the nations. It is the power of salvation for all who believe. We are but weak and foolish creatures, incapable of doing any good. We cannot see of ourselves what your will for our lives is. We pray, therefore, illumine our darkened minds by your Holy Spirit. Make us truly humble, listening eagerly for what you tell us, not what we want to hear. Block out all the worldly conceit that calls to us from every side and distracts us from the truth from you. Cause us instead to understand your gospel and be governed by it. Bless our time of worship and strengthen us so that in this week that lies ahead and in every day that dawns until you return or call us home, we will honor and glorify you and be a blessing on each other and the world around us. We pray all this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This afternoon, we will look at the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us in baptism, as the church confesses that in Lord's Days 26 and 27. In connection with our confession, we will read two passages, one from the Old and one from the New. First, let's read Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14, which you can find on page 11 or page 14 of your Bible. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of, of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And now we'll turn to Hebrews 8, 
and we will read the whole chapter. And you can find that on page 1005 or 1192. Hebrews 8. Now the point that we are in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So far, the reading of Scripture. Uh, Let us prepare for our sermon with the singing of Psalm 105, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4.
turn with me to page 540 of the Book of Praise, where we find the gospel of Christ as the church confesses it in Lord's Days 26 and 27. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, this Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly the body and, his body and spirit, his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with, this, with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Where has Christ promised that he will wash us with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated where scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Only the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us that by this, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. After the sermon, we will respond with singing Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is baptism all about? We can't take it for granted that we know the answer to that question. For many around us who claim to, be, to believe in Christ, baptism is about us. Baptism is about us making a commitment to Christ. Baptism tells God that we really mean business. That often ties into two other trends around us. One is the rejection of infant baptism, and the other is a compromising of God's sovereignty in our salvation. Of course, 
infants can't express a commitment to Christ, so of course you don't baptize them. And if your doctrine of salvation gives a prominent place to human decisions and a lesser place to God's grace, then it shouldn't be at all surprising that your view of baptism is similar. But closer to home, there is a potential that we could develop a similar approach to baptism. Every time we witness a baptism, the parents answer some questions. They make vows before the Lord. It could happen that we view those vows as the essence of baptism. That baptism is really about parents making a commitment to to raise their child in a way that pleases God. Baptism is then really about the promises that the parents make regarding their child. But it would be a mistake to think that way. The promises made by the parents are connected to the baptism of their child, but those promises don't make up the essence of what baptism is really about. When we read the summary of biblical teaching found in Lord's Days 26 and 27, did you hear anything about people making promises? No, there is nothing about people making promises there. And it's not found in the summary of biblical teaching found in Article 34 of the Belgic Confession either. At its heart, baptism is not about people making promises to God. It's quite the other way around. That's what we're going to learn about this afternoon. We're going to consider how holy baptism is all about the promises of our God. We'll consider first what those promises are, second, who those promises are for, And third, how those promises are to be embraced. Each time we have baptism administered, we first listen to the form for the baptism of infants. It's a beautiful little sermon about baptism. At the beginning, there's that wonderful section explaining why we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It all has to do with the promises of God in the covenant of grace. Being baptized into the Father means that God the Father tells us that we are in the covenant of grace with him. He has marked us off and separated us from the world. We are his children. We are heirs. We are those in line to receive an inheritance from him. He promises us that he will give us good things in this life and in the life to come. He will turn evil away from us or he'll turn it into something good. He promises that he has a hand of power and a heart of love for each of us. Being baptized into the Son means that Christ promises us that we are washed in his blood from all our sins. We are united to him in his death and resurrection. That means he promises that our old nature was crucified with him on the cross and our new nature has come to life with his resurrection. The consequence is that sin no longer can send us to hell. God looks at us, and he sees us through the lens of his Son. He counts everything that Christ has done to our account. We are right, because, we are right with God because of Jesus. Christ promises us freedom from the curse of sin. Being baptized into the Holy Spirit means that the Spirit promises us that he will live in us. He will connect us to Christ each day. He will pass on what we have in Jesus. Through the ministry of the Spirit, we find our hope for forgiveness through Christ. And then we also hate sin and fight against it. 
He promises to work that in us until the last day when we appear before the judgment seat without blemish or defect. In our baptism, the Holy Spirit promises us that he will help us run the race and finish the race all through Christ. Loved ones, these are beautiful promises, encouraging, awesome to reflect on. Our catechism speaks along the same lines as the form. But the focus there is on washing, washing with Christ's blood and spirit. Through the waters of baptism, God promises us that we are washed from our sins with Christ's blood. That means we have the promise of forgiveness, but we're also promised the washing of the Holy Spirit. That means that God promises his spirit to work in us and renew us. That means we have the promise of sanctification. Those same promises are also found in what we read from Hebrews 8. That passage speaks of the covenant of grace after the coming of Christ. There are better promises after the coming of Christ. And then the author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31. There we find God promising to put his laws in the minds of his people. He will write them on their hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will be poured out and he will guide believers to walk in the ways of God. Not only that, but God promises radical forgiveness too. He says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Forgive and forget. That's what God promises to do. The sins of God's people will not be an obstacle to their relationship with him. There will be a clear line of fellowship between God and them. How can he promise that? Through Christ. So, at its heart, baptism is about the promises of God relating to redemption from sin through Christ's blood and the promises of God relating to the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts and who works sanctification in our lives. To put it succinctly, baptism is about the promises of God for our salvation. The next question is, who are these promises for? We should look at the answer to that in connection with the covenant of grace. Throughout the Bible, with whom does God enter into covenant relationships? As we survey the Bible, taking the big picture approach, to whom does God give the promises of the covenant of grace? That's where Genesis 17 is so crucial. God comes to Abraham. He changes his name to Abraham because he will be the father of many nations. Not only that, but God will be in a perpetual relationship with Abraham, a covenant of grace forever. Yahweh promises to be his God. But did God restrict that covenant to Abraham? Did he restrict it to to the adults in Abraham's household who might be able to independently express a commitment to Yahweh? No. God said that he was covenanting with Abraham and his descendants, with Abraham and his children. As a sign and seal of that, all the male members of Abraham's household were to be marked with circumcision. Young and old alike were to be circumcised because they were all taken into the covenant of grace established with Abraham. They were all recipients of the promises made to Abraham. Now, some may object that that's from the Old Testament. But in Acts 2, when Peter addressed the crowd on the day of Pentecost, didn't he also say, 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise is for believers and their children after Christ, just like it was before Christ. Think of it this way. Before Jesus died on the cross, Jewish believers and their children were included in the covenant of grace. About that, there is no question. I think even the most ardent Baptist, the ardent Baptist, will agree with that. But how can it be that Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and then all of a sudden, the children of believers are excluded from the covenant? All of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, God's promises are no longer for them. The idea would have been horrific to first century Jewish Christians. That wouldn't have made any sense. That would have stripped some of the goodness away from the good news. And we would certainly expect to see some controversy over such a radical departure in the book of Acts somewhere. But there's nothing about that. Instead, what we find suggests continuity on this point between the Old Testament and the New Testament administrations of the covenant of grace. Children were included in the old, and they continue to be included in the new. The children of believers continue to be recipients of God's covenant promises and therefore ought to be baptized. Here we can bring in Hebrews 8 again. The covenant of grace after Christ's death is said to be a better covenant. It has been improved. The question that our Baptist friends need to answer is, how can the covenant of grace be said to be better and improved by suddenly casting out the children of believers? And didn't Jesus himself show such remarkable compassion and love for covenant children in the Gospels? Why would he suddenly cast them out after his work on the cross? What kind of sense does that make? And last of all, didn't Paul regard children as being under the promises and obligations of the covenant? Here I'm thinking of what he said in the first three verses of Ephesians 6. He refers to the fifth commandment, one of the ten words of the covenant. He tells the children of believers to obey their parents in the Lord. Why? It's a commandment that comes with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. There's a promise and an obligation. This is a feature of a covenant, and Paul's appeal to it here shows concretely that he regarded children of believers as belonging to the covenant of grace. He says you have to keep this commandment because you are part of God's covenant people. If they belong to the covenant, then they are recipients of the promises, and they should receive the sign and seal in holy baptism. Now, All that being true, we should not assume that receiving these wonderful promises means the same thing as receiving what is promised. We should not assume that being baptized means that you automatically get what is signed and sealed in baptism. A promise is exactly that. It is a word which states you will get something. But the promises in the covenant of grace come with a condition or an obligation. There is something that has to follow. An illustration will help make this clear. This is an illustration that has often been used, so please be patient if you've heard it before. When you receive a check, you receive a promissory note. The check is a promise of a certain amount of money. 
It's not the money itself, although it is still valuable because it holds the promise of that money. There are two things you can do with a check. You can treat it for the valuable thing that it is, guard it carefully, and then bring it to the bank. You can cash it or deposit it into your bank account, and then you've received the money promised. But you had to take it to the bank. The other thing you might do with a check is disregard it. You might crumple it up and put it in your pocket and forget about it. Your pants end up in the washing machine, and the next time you wear those pants, you put your hand in the pocket and pull out this compact ball of paper. That was your check. Did you receive what was promised on that check then? Of course not. You treated it as a piece of garbage and you received nothing. You lost out. Baptism and the promises signed and sealed in it are like that. With the promises of God in baptism, you are told that you are very blessed in Jesus Christ. What each of us has to do with that is respond in faith. We have to appropriate or embrace those promises for our own. The condition to receive what is promised is faith. You are called to believe what God says about himself and you in your baptism. If you don't, you won't receive what is promised. This is where the illustration of the check fails, actually. If you don't cash the check, you just get nothing. You are no richer or poorer for not having gone to the bank with it. But in the covenant of grace, those who spurn God's promises will face horrible consequences for their actions. You are then a covenant breaker. The Bible is clear that God has far more wrath and displeasure stored up for covenant people who slap him in the face than for just regular vanilla unbelievers. If you don't believe that, I'd invite you to give careful reading to Hebrews 10. It's all there in black and white. What the Word of God is saying is this, brothers and sisters. There is nothing automatic in the covenant of grace. Yes, receiving God's promises is beautiful. Those promises are rich, and they're not only for us, but they are also for our children, each and every one. But no one should ever think that what is promised in the covenant of grace comes to us apart from faith. If we are not believing what God says in his word, we will not receive what is promised. If we are not resting and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, turning from our sin and turning to him, we will not receive what is promised. Salvation is by grace alone, but it is also received by faith alone. There are two things that follow from that. The first is the personal responsibility of each of us to hear the call to faith this afternoon and heed it. Hear the beautiful promises of God with regard to your salvation and say, yes, God, I believe you. I believe what you promised at my baptism is true for me. I believe that you are my God through Christ. That is the response of faith to God's promises. The second thing has to do with our children. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned the vows parents make at baptism. Yes, we do have to instruct our children in the promises of the gospel. There's a calling there for all the parents among us. It is a cruel father and mother who keep quiet about the promises of God and never speak to their children about them. But then there's something else too. That has to do with prayer. 
Since the promises are to be embraced through faith, and since faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, we need to pray for the work of the Spirit in in each of our children. We need to pray that he would be present and he would regenerate them and give them hearts of faith so that they trust the covenant promises, that they would look in faith to Christ alone for their salvation. It's true that there's nothing automatic in the covenant of grace. You won't be saved just because your parents were believers or because you were baptized. Now, when we say that, we do have to add a couple of qualifiers. There are exceptional situations. We think of the children of believers who die in infancy or perhaps before they are born. As we confess in the canons of Dort, we need not doubt their salvation. We can trust in God's grace. These are situations where these children never took up a place of responsibility within the covenant of grace, an exceptional exceptional situation. We need not doubt. The same has to be said for those with mental handicaps or disabilities. Some simply cannot take up a place of responsibility where they can respond to God's promises of faith. With them, too, believing parents ought not be concerned or doubt in any way. God will be gracious and merciful. You can trust him. He only holds people accountable for what they know and for what they do with what they know. Brothers and sisters, baptism speaks beautiful things to us. It has been described as a visible preaching of the gospel since the time of the church fathers. It speaks to us of God's grace and his initiative in the covenant of grace. Each time we see a covenant child baptized, we're reminded again that our gracious God has inclined his heart toward us in love. As his covenant people then, we are also called to believe him and embrace everything that is promised in faith. Amen.
have the opportunity to give your gifts of thankfulness to the Lord. Uh, the offerings are for the work of the deacons to help those in need, both within and outside the congregation. And after they've been received, we will sing Psalm or Hymn 58, all three verses. May God bless your giving.
write everything down so you don't forget, and then you forget. So let's now, uh, together with the Church of All Times and Places, confess our undoubted Christian faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed as set to music in hymn one. This afternoon, we will also remember um, our sister, uh, Yulin, who is, who is having troubles these, this past week with uh, her MS, and as well as the, uh, the, the children who have finished school for the year and the grads who have completed their schooling. Let's pray. O oh God in heaven, thank you for your precious promises signed and sealed in baptism. We are glad that we have your name upon us, that you promised to wash us with Christ's blood and spirit. Please help each of us to embrace what is promised in faith. Lord, we also pray for all our children, that you would give them faith through the working of your spirit in them. We pray that none of them would miss out on what is promised to them in the covenant of grace. We pray that because we love them, but more importantly, because we love you and want to see you praised through them. Father, you know that some of our children have turned from you. They have been baptized, have heard the gospel promises, and nonetheless, they turn their backs on you. There is one such covenant child that has been put under discipline in our congregation. Holy and gracious Father, we know that none of us can outsin your grace. And if it is your will, we pray that you would draw these children back so that we can rejoice in you together with them once more. And if it is not your will, Grant to us strength and wisdom to know that your will, your love, your goodness are all, are all far better than ours and that this too is for your glory. This past week, we witnessed once again the passing of the seasons from spring into summer. With this, co- and with this comes the end of another school year. We thank you, Father, for the great blessing that our schools are in raising our children in the fear of your name. 
We pray that you will be with the students, staff, and teachers as they enjoy their summer break. We thank you also for those who have graduated. We think first of the grade eights, Hunter Vienendal, Joshua Mohajan, Lydia Shea, and Zach Vandenhoven. We thank you for the maturing that we can see in these young people and pray that you will continue to bless them as they enter high school. We thank you also for Andrew Gunning, Connor Schoon, and Daniel Slump, who have all finished their time in grade school. Be with them as they move from the family environments, from the familiar environments of family and Christian schools into the world at large. Protect them from the dangers that lurk and help them to continue to grow in maturity of faith. Finally, we thank you for that Daniel Dam could finish his nursing program and take up his vocation full time. We pray that in his work, he would be a blessing on those whom he serves and that through his hands, they would see Christ at work through him. Heavenly Father, there are many cares in our congregation. Jennifer Euland is struggling with her MS. There are times such as this week when it takes so much out of our sister and everything is a struggle. Grant our sister and Neek, her husband, the strength they need to persevere through these difficult times. Father, may you grant all those in our congregation who suffer from illness and disease of any sort, as well as their families and loved ones, the comfort of the covenant promises, so that even in days of suffering and sorrow, they can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we have called candidate Matthias Schatt to pastor among us. We know that our brother has received other calls and must now decide where you send him. We pray, that, we pray that you will grant him wisdom as he makes his decision. We pray also that whether he accepts the call here or not, that you will continue to provide your congregation with faithful under-shepherds to tend this flock. Bless the work of the elders and deacons in our midst and cause us to make their work a joy, not a sorrow. All this we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Our final song for this afternoon is Psalm 135, verses 1, 2, 9, and 10.
recipients of God's covenant promises, young and old, hear once more those promises and take hold of those promises through faith. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.